Artists Worldwide. So what's happening, everybody? Welcome to a very special episode of Global Brothers Podcast. We're still in quarantine life, but you know, we're fortunate. We're here. It's your boy, The Dandy, with you. And of course, my man, Big Heath. What's up, brother? Good. Boom. Pounded. Mmm. Wonderful, man. Hey, pretty soon we will be out of this quarantine and we'll be having brothers uh, like uh, Congressman Kojo in person at some point, right? Yes, yeah, yes, let's, yes. Let's speak, let's speak that into existence right yeah. now. Exactly. We are pleased to be joined today by um, uh, future Congressman Kojo Asamoa Caesar, who is the um, uh, son of uh, Ghanaian parents, uh, so what we call a dreamer uh, in the U.S. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, like he's got, a, he's got a very fascinating story and we can't wait to uh, dig into it. So welcome to Global Brothers Podcast, Brother Kojo. Thank you, Brother Marlon, Brother Heat, um, for having me. I'm excited to chat with y'all. As we are, man, um, uh, I would say probably the last, out of the last six or seven shows we've had, I've uh, plugged the fact that I went to Ghana in December for the year of return. And that's just a dig at Marlon because he couldn't make it. So <laughs> I, every chance I get, I, I, I dig and turn the knife a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was in Ghana, I'm fascinated, uh, went all the way up to, of course, Cape Coast and, you know, was all around Accra for about 14 days. Please, how did you get to the U.S.? Tell us about, you know, being an, an immigrant, uh, the feeling uh, around this time of being an immigrant um, and, you know, the, the whole experience of, of getting your family or you yeah. getting to America. Yeah, you know, I usually start my story with my mom. All right, because she was a dreamer, right? Um, before that term was, you know, given to immigrants here, she was born in 1960 um, in Ghana. And um, this is, if you look at the context of what's going on in the world, you know, um, she was born, born in the fall of 1960. A couple months later, John F. Kennedy would become president, right? And he would be this, you know, young, charismatic figure. Um, touting America as this, you know, land of dreams, you know, um, and establishing programs like the Peace Corps, where you have Americans going to different nations and spreading the gospel of, you know, such a, what a great place America is. And so my mom comes of age in a time where she's seen America as the land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's the promised land. And I right. usually say this, when you're in Ghana, um, America, you know, heaven is you know, this high and right below heaven is America, right? Um, and and America might even be better than heaven because you don't have to die to go there, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so my mom was fortunate enough to apply for the visa lottery um, and, and won, you know, one of just a handful of people globally who get to win this visa lottery and get the opportunity to come to America. And so she's one of nine siblings. She leaves her family behind, leaves her friends behind, um, familiar settings behind, and makes a 5,000-mile trek over the Atlantic to come to the United States. And she's 23 years old, right? So she lands in Alexandria, Virginia, about 15 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. Um, and, you know, her dream was to be a doctor. So she was dreaming big, being a woman 
growing up in Ghana, not really seeing a lot of women doctors. She was dreaming big. She meets my dad when she arrives here. He's also emigrated from Ghana um, and was a recent arrival. They're part of a Ghanaian community in Northern Virginia. Um, and then three years later, I come along. So 1983 is when she got here. 1986 is when I was born. And, and then that's when the story starts to get interesting. Uh, and some of the major themes that um, have been a through line in my story is the notion of the American dream, but also the, it's a double-sided coin because on the other side is the American disappointment, right? So if you're in Ghana and you think America is heaven, but you get here and it's not quite heaven, right? Money doesn't quite grow on trees, you know? So, so there's some disappointment that you have to deal with and grapple with. And my mom, um, her, she had finished sixth form, which was kind of like a um, associate's degree in Ghana. When she gets to the States, those don't transfer. So she has to start all over again. You know, my dad, his dream was to be rich, right? And he had seen the images of folks in the back of limousines sipping champagne, right, in America, and you get here, and that's not the reality, right? And you, the only jobs that are really available to you are certain menial jobs, whether it's working as a security guard or driving a taxi, right? Um, and so different people deal with, you know, uh, what happens to a dream deferred, right? Deal with disappointment in different ways. Um, and so, yeah, so for me, my mom became a single mom because my dad left. Um, and she's working multiple jobs to put food on the table. She's going to school and she's trying to care for me and it's tough, but she has this big family back in Ghana. And so they say, stop being silly, just send him back to Ghana so he can grow up here, be around his cousins, aunties and uncles and you know, learn the language and all that. So, so the age of two, I was sent back to Ghana and I actually lived in Ghana from two to 10. All right, wow. so. Okay. Well, just let me tell you, I want you, want you to uh, say more about going back to Ghana, that experience. Was it a culture shock uh, for you? Uh, but I'm a little petty, and I use every opportunity. So I'll just do this real quick. All right? And the jersey, the Black right. Stars jersey, always pulling out on me. When, en when oh, anybody man. brings up Ghana, Kojo, he pulls out the Black Stars jersey on me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> man, that's dope. That's real dope. Where'd you get that? In Ghana, of course. Uh, it was. Uh, you, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the art center in Ghana. I believe. Is it? Say more about it. Where? Uh, it's it's an outdoor market. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's called the art center. You yeah, know, because yeah, of course yeah. you get art there, but it's not yeah. like an art museum like we've been right. thinking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but um. Yeah, it was a really nice place. I and mean, I would love to go over there with a lot of money and just ship stuff, you know, back home. Yeah. Yeah, you do all the negotiating with the people selling stuff. And yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to the art center because there's some things I want to just ship. Because they'll ship for you as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's so life in Ghana, man, those, those formidable years. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, I was, I was two years old. So, you know, I was very young when I arrived. So I just, you know slipped right in and I was a Ghanaian, you know, and my aunt, my mom's sister, you know, took me in as one of her own. She had four kids. I became a part of the family. Um, and, you know, the values that were instilled in me growing up in Ghana are still the values that um, drive me to this day, right? Values like, you know, you know, in Ghana, 
if somebody's not your mom or your dad, they're your auntie or your uncle, right? You know, and so there is this notion of the village, um, and it takes a village to raise a kid. You know, if you're if you're walking back from school and you're cutting up in the neighborhood, and you know your neighbor sees you through the window, they can come out and handle you know um, business, and it is totally fine. Um, also, this notion of respecting your elders, right? Um, and the wisdom that comes from folks who've been here before you, you know? Uh, and so if your elder says the sky is purple, right? You just nod your head <laughs> and agree. Um, and then just even kindness, right? Just being kind um, to people. Um, and, you know, Ghanaians were very much, you know, Ghana is one of the um, sub-Saharan African nations that went through a bloodless revolution, right? We didn't fight a civil war. Um, so we're not really fighters, right? We're, we're more, we're going to talk. You know, we can talk for days and argue for days. Um, and, and so there is that camaraderie, that conversation, that back and forth banter. Um, and so, so yeah, we just love people and we're good, you know, um, just good people. And, um, and so, yeah, so it was great growing up in Ghana, going to school there. Um, I loved, you know, there's this thing called bofroats. I don't know if you guys know about bofroats. You know, it's kind of like a little donut, you know, thing. Um, used to eat af after school. And then there's the ice water, you know, there's water, ice water in a little bag that women are selling on the side of the road, you know, and they got their babies on their back. Um, so so it was, just, it was just a beautiful upbringing. Um, and I really enjoyed my time there. It's wonderful, man. That's awesome because like um like a lot a lot a lot of those like food kind of things like those are our first memories aren't they like they like it's big. they say that food um like you know like the smell and all these things like the olfactory nerve it, like does bring back memories about like childhood and like those those you know like Heath said formidable years and like just like the joy of being a child. Right, right. No, it's very true. In uh in uh, Jamaica we have a we have a we have a similar um, uh, drink. Uh, we call it suck suck or bag juice or sky juice that like, you know, comes in a bag and it's just like flavored water, you know, or like ice mm. water, like, you know, in the bag that's flavored. So like, yeah, very right. similar. Right, right, right. No, it, it does. And, you know, I mean, when you're growing up in these places that the world deems a third world country or a struggling place, like, um, it's very communal. Right, because you have to rely on each other. And so, you know, food plays a role in that. And all the different things that give us an opportunity to come together, right, um, and build camaraderie and um, pass along knowledge and joke around and laugh. And so, so yeah, so food becomes very attached to those settings, you know, um, and build very fond memories. Wow. That's uh, very interesting that, uh, you know, Kojo brings up the idea of the village. Because I know that, uh, you know, you and I were just recently working on a project, um, you know, about the village, um, you know, kind of kind of kind of fill in our audience and Kojo on that. So uh, a gentleman named uh, Jeffrey Robinson, he's actually the lead social justice person at the ACLU, American uh, yes. Civil he's, Liberties Union. He came to speak here um, a few months ago. So I thought you got to meet him. Really? Yeah, he's awesome. He, he's amazing. And um a friend of mine sent me a clip, a YouTube clip, I think around 13 minutes. And um, actually, no, it was a little long. It was an hour and 40 minutes. I'm sorry. But the clip that, that I'm going to speak of is about 10 minutes or 13 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, it's the ending of his speech, actually. So it's an hour and 40 minutes. It's captivating. You will not turn it off. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, man, 
um, he shows these wild buffalo in Africa. Um, they were just grazing, and they, you know, they, they accidentally walked right into a pack of lions. And there was a baby, and they retreated, and the baby retreated as well. But these lions, they caught the uh, the baby. Well, when they caught the baby, the baby had slid into the water and the lions were pulling it out of the water, but then an alligator comes, clamps onto the baby. So now they're trying to pull this game or this catch. Wow. And, rent, and, and uh, uh, Jeff Robinson is narrating this, talking about hopelessness, talking about racism, talking about white supremacy, talking about um, just, just, you know, how things can just seem totally over for you and there's just no hope. Mm. Well, these people who were videotaping this, there was actually a, a tour guide with some people from South Africa. They zoomed out and they showed this buffalo, probably 50 to 100 buffalo came mm -hmm. and attacked the lions because the lions had pulled the, the baby out of the water. So the, the alligator didn't win, but of course the baby was injured because it was clamped. Right. So they pulled the baby out of the water. The buffalo came. I'm talking deep. Okay, they came and they started to throw and chase the lions away. Wow. So uh, Marlon and I got together. We just took that clip. We shrunk it to maybe 60 seconds to a minute. I mean, 60 seconds to uh, 90 seconds. And um, we just talked about the village and how the village we say a village to raise a child, but a village to protect the child as well. Mm, so, um, yeah, I'll send you that. It's actually on um, on Instagram, so I'll just tag you so you can watch that. No, that's okay. good. That's good. And yeah. you know what? What that gets me thinking is right. I think when it's important for us to come to understand that, but also our so-called enemies understand that as well, which mm -hmm. is why they would seek to break up the village right they'll seek to divide and conquer and to exactly. do everything in their power to ensure that we don't come together because exactly. our power is in our coming together yeah yeah definitely yeah um yeah i can't wait to show it to you <laughs> i can't wait to tag you in on it because um i promoted it on a couple of social media platforms uh because mm -hmm. it was just profound to me but the way i mean i narrated it marlon produced it um but the way Jeffrey does it to this crowd of people at the ACLU conference, mm -hmm. the way he yeah. did it was, 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 was amazing. I want to ask Kojo about, um, so then, you know, like you, you, like you grow up a little bit uh, in Ghana and then, uh, uh, and then obviously you come back over to the States. So like, kind of tell us about that experience of like um, coming to America, so to speak. And uh, then, you know, the American dream now for you as a young man. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I talked about this whole notion of America being the land flowing with milk and honey, America being right below heaven, all right? And this dream that everybody has to go to this place, because if I can get to this place, all my dreams are going to come true. But at the same token, I'm growing up and I'm, I'm happy, right? I'm joyful. I have friends. You know, I love going to school. I love my teachers. I love playing soccer and basketball. Like, I'm enjoying my life. I love my family, right? And um, one day, remember very vividly, I'm outside, you know, our house, compound, and we're playing soccer. I'm playing soccer with my friends. 
uh, one auntie comes to the house I've never met before, comes to meet with my aunt, mama, and they're talking. They call me inside. So my auntie, who I called mama because I really thought she was my mom, says, hey, you know, it's time for you to go back to America. And, you know, this woman here is going to be flying to America, you know, next month, and you're going to be going with her. All right. And so the feeling I had at the time was one, I'm kind of distracted because I'm like, I'm playing soccer with my friends. I want to go back to go play soccer with them. Two, I've just been told that I'm going to America. I'm going to heaven, right? So I should be elated, you know? And so I say, okay, I walk back out afterwards to my friends and I deliver the news to them, right? And there was this moment where we all realized on the one hand, we're celebrating because, wow, you're going to get to go to America. But on the other hand, that means you have to leave us, right? And you have to leave everything, everybody you know, all your friends, all the fun you're having, you have to leave in order to go, you know? And so they say America is better than heaven because you don't have to die to go there. But in that moment, I felt like maybe you do have to die to go there after all because you're having to leave everything that you know, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I left came here, arrived in Northern Virginia at the age of 10. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because um, I, at a young age, was also grappling with why I was sent to Ghana, right? And the story that my auntie had told me was, you know, my, my favorite movie at the time was Home Alone. Right? And she said, you know, in America, you can't stay home alone or else that's the kind of stuff that happens, you know? And so your mom sent you here because you were young so that you can be here with us. And when you're old enough to be able to stay home by yourself, you can go back. Um, and so I came here and to the States, the first, I get picked up from the airport by an uncle of mine. I get home and I'm waiting for my mom. She finally walks through the door and in tow is a little girl. Right. Wow. Turns out that's my sister. You know? Wow. At the time, 10, she's four years old. Uh, but it's interesting because once I saw her, that story I was telling myself about why I was in Ghana was shattered, right? Because, like, well, she's a kid and she's here in America. Right? right. And then the first meal, speaking of meals and memories, the first meal I had when I came to the States was. Um, macaroni and cheese but it was that box mac and cheese you know that craft oh. mac and cheese yeah. and it was the nastiest thing i've tasted in my life right oh, and no. i can't tell you to this day if it was because of the fact that it was just nasty or the bad taste i had in my mouth from what i was experiencing right and in, in the sense of oh well like i have a mom that was here and i really didn't know her and you know, I was sent away and now I have a little sister I didn't even know about, you know. So so it's definitely an adjustment period. And then, you know, get here and I have a thick accent, you know. So my name is Kojo Asamoa Caesar. It is very nice to meet you, you know. Right. I, I am thirsty. I want some water, you know. So, like, I have this thick accent, you know. And um, I go to school. Like, imagine I've been just taken from a whole nother world dropped into this world and I got to start school like the next day, you know, wow. and, um, it's fifth grade and, you know, I don't understand the American kids cause I feel like they speak too fast. They don't understand my thick accent. Um, so it's tough 
having to adjust to all that, you know. Um, but I did, and I made it. I made it do, um, and made friends, and just you know, um, assimilated. One of the um, one of the early successes was we had a spelling test in fifth grade, and um, I was the only one to get all the words correct. And it just shocked my classmates. Like, what is going on? This African guy who can barely speak English got all the, you know. But what happened was there was a word, laboratory, right? Laboratory, right, was the word. Because of my accent and how we emphasize every syllable of the word, right, I was able to spell it because there's a laboratory is how you spell it. The other kids pronounced it laboratory, so they forgot, you know, the A in the middle, right? right. Uh, so... It was kind of like this shocker where my accent actually helped me to um, succeed. Um, so. You know, that's funny. You remind me, you made me think of, my wife is from Ethiopia. Mm. And the way she pronounces words, of course, you know, Amharic is her mother tongue. So the way she pronounces words seems like it's wrong and it's 100% correct. Right. right. But right. because we speak a certain dialect, we have a lazy tongue, you know, with English we're not as proper um right. it seems like she's saying something wrong and she she literally enunciates correctly you know right all right so all right. she's been taught a certain way you know and you know there's wow. a lot there's a lot of challenges that you go through i experienced them all right and you know these are kids you're in fifth grade sixth grade so you get called all the names you know african booty scratcher and kids making monkey sounds right and noises and asking you if you live you know lived on trees um right. and you know drank river water i, I heard mm -hmm. it all right? and right. so you have to navigate this and mm -hmm. the way that i found to navigate it was through humor and mm -hmm. kind of reducing what they were saying to absurdity so i would say yes i did grow up on a tree but don't feel sorry for me i grew up on a big tree because i was rich <laughs> you know right. um and you know those kinds of things that will get them confused like hold up is he joking or is he for real or you know um but that's that was the way to just dispel those myths and say like the things y'all were saying is ridiculous right but growing up i realized i couldn't blame them because they were watching national geographic if you're watching the media you don't get positive images of africa right you get the images of the the kid with the big belly with the flies you know going on their face and all that and so so yeah so that's you know fast forward to today that's why um, I'm so happy for the reception to my story because it gives us an opportunity to represent uh, Africa, to represent you know a different story and a different way of looking at where we come from. Right. So that's fascinating. You know, um, I, I want to follow up a question about that because here in the Middle East and anywhere in the world, even when I went to Ghana and when I'm in Ethiopia, or of course my uh, in-laws are you know, from East Africa, mm -hmm. I wear a certain uh, burden. I shouldn't call it a burden, but I wear a responsibility mm -hmm. to show a different side of the black American male. And mm -hmm. then, then, of course, the American, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, they, there's a term, the ugly American, of course, we're ignorant and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I'm interacting with people, I want to give them something different. Mm -hmm. um, did you wear that burden? in your childhood, even even now, okay, as an accomplished yeah. person in politics, do you wear that burden? Because there's oh. times where 
if I even text and the word is misspelled, I'm like, <laughs> ah, <laughs> just, just yeah. the little things that we're not really allowed to do. Right. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, that is, that is the burden. If you're black, you know, in America, in, you know, Europe, in a foreign land, like, it seems as if you represent your whole race, right? right. And so there's a certain way that you have to move and you can't move and people are judging you. Um, and whatever mistake you make is going to be extrapolated and applied to your whole race, right? So for instance, you know, and here in Tulsa, we had um, an unfortunate incident where an individual shot a police officer, actually shot two police officers, right? And, you know, shot them in the head, right? And um, ended up killing one of them. As a black person, especially in the environment that we're in, when you first read that headline, right? The first thing that crosses your mind is, oh my gosh, I hope whoever did it wasn't black. Always. Right? Like, that's what you're thinking. Because you know what it means, you know, for the rest of us. Right. Right? When I was in law school, right, I went to College of Wilma Mary Law School, oldest law school in the nation. I'm a model of a lot of the founding fathers. Um, we were in a class of about 250 and we only had about 30 of us that were black. So you're sitting in the classroom and the teach the professor calls on you. And in the moment that the professor calls on you, you feel the burden and the weight of your whole race, right? Because you know, I got to answer this question, right? If I blow it, people are going to look at me and say, Oh, see these black people are only here because of affirmative action, right? They're only here. They don't really deserve to be here. They're not as smart as the rest of us. Um, and that is just not fair. Um, and it creates this, this mindset that we have to be perfect. And yeah. we can't be perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's, tough. it's tough. You know, you know what, was, what was a game changer for me? Um, I was at, in college. I think I was, I was in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I might have been a sophomore. And I wasn't a great student. Um, you know, I was just getting by, played sports. So all I was focused on is the basketball, just being eligible to play, you know, play the sports, basketball. Right. And I can remember um, there was a test. Uh, it was after a test. The teacher, the professor was passing out the results. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting an A minus. And before the teacher passed the results out, he wrote A's. B's, C's, D's, and, you know, a few of you failed it, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, the pressure was ensuing as he was passing them out. I just knew I was in the, maybe the C range if I was lucky, right? I was the only black person in the class. There was about 60 students. So I was figuring I have to be down there somewhere. So when he passed it to me, I got an A, and the light just switched on. I looked around and was like, I'm smarter than some of these white people. Like, because, I mean, there was at least like 35 people in B, C, D, F range, at least 35. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I mean, my life changed that day. That was my wow moment. Like, there's some white people in here that failed this test. Really? You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was that moment that I just had to take off the stereotype threat, you know, the threats that I've been carrying and yeah. leave them. So, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah, and 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 uh, Kojo, I wanna um, I wanna touch on as well the um, the marketing machine 
uh, and the PR machine behind America. Cause like you said, like, you know, it's next to heaven, you know, for like a lot of immigrants and that's why they do come to America and either risk life or limb as refugees or, um, you know, come in, come in, come in more so like dreamer status, but like, you know, uh, from like the big apple to, 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 to just like the statue of Liberty, all of the, all of these like iconography, iconic imagery that, that, that has been like spread throughout the world. And obviously like Hollywood movies and these kinds of things. Uh, so I'm sure, so I'm sure you, you, you came up seeing these things, uh, as well. Um, speak to, speak to how you think that like, um, Africa uh, uh, can 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 kind of like write their own narrative and change some of these images uh, that others think of us. Yeah, man, you know it's it's so deep because so on the one hand, for instance, um, I don't want to put anybody in blast. Look, I have certain relatives, right, who they grew up in Ghana. They have this. They've seen the images. They bought into the dream, so they come to the states. All right. Then they see the reality, right? And they didn't come and get rich. They ended up becoming taxi drivers or working menial jobs like security. But, you know, they cobbled some money together. And after many years, they're able to go back, right, for holiday, right, and visit the country of origin. So they go back to Ghana. But what do they do when they arrive in Ghana, right? They splurge. They act as if they are living like kings and queens in America, right? And because the dollar goes a lot farther, you know, when you change the money, right, they come and they, they keep up the narrative. They keep up their appearances, right? And so now the people who are living in Ghana and haven't been to America, they buy into it. They say, oh, it really is heaven. It really is this land of, you know, great opportunity and anybody, you just go there and, you know, you just get rich. Um, so we even buy into the into that, and I think there is some sense of shame um, that comes with. Oh my gosh! Like I came here and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and I'm not as successful as I thought it was going to be. Um, so you know, I go back. I can't just you know tell the truth about this place. Um, and so I, I like to say that no place has one single story, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different stories, a lot of different experiences. There, you know, my best friend born in Ghana, lives in Ghana right now. He's living like a king in Ghana, right? He's, he's CEO of an um, energy company. Um, he lives in Trasaco. Like, you know, he's living better than some Americans, right, live over here in America, right? So there are rich, well-to-do people everywhere, right, in every country. And then there are people who are struggling. And then there's, you know, some middle-class folks. Um, and so we got to get away from telling this one single story about these places, you know, um, about, for instance, I went back to Ghana. I was 10 when I came back here. I went back to Ghana in 2008 after college when I was 22. And my next door neighbor was talking to me and Hurricane Katrina, right, um, had occurred, you know, about a year or two before that. And mm-hmm. It was the first time that a lot of people through the TV screens in Ghana were seeing images come from America that wasn't heaven, right? It was black people and they were, you know, seen to be in distress and poverty. And so he says to me, man, like, I did not realize that level of poverty existed in America, you know? And so he asked me the question, so is the American dream really real, right? Uh, and, and that was such an important question. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I think we have to, and I, and I love, so that's why I love things like what you guys are doing with the Global Brothers podcast. There are a lot of other people, right, in Ghana who are getting into media, you know, the democratization of these platforms and media allows us to tell our own stories, right? Um, and so I jump at the opportunity to hop on a podcast or, you know, somebody who's just started their media platform because it helps us to tell our stories our way. And it ha doesn't have to be through the filter of some corporate interest that right. has their own agenda, right? And so I think that's how it has to be. And we have to support podcasts like y'all's um, and a lot more. Um, and, and hopefully we get more opportunities, you know, through various media platforms so that more and more people can understand what's going on. And if I'm fortunate enough to ascend to this position, right? I, you know, if you watch my ads, my commercials, like I don't run away from my Ghanaian heritage. I don't run away from my mom's story, right? Ghana is as much a part of me as America is. So, so yeah, so I am going to be, I'm going to represent, you know, and I'm going to tell that story so that I can bring, you know, uh, more notoriety to, you know, what it means to be Ghanaian, what it means to be Ghanaian American, what it means to be part of the diaspora, you know? Man, that's fantastic. You know, um, I would say probably your last two comments or last two, uh, you know, things that we, questions that we ask or answers to your questions. Um, I want to ask you something that, that, has been on my mind and me and Marlon have talked about it, uh, especially since living abroad. Um, that word black, okay? Um, many times in Nigeria, you know, they might even go tribe, right? They may even go um, Igbo, right? Or Ashanti in Ghana, like. But when you go to the States and you have this, this social construct, okay? And we just say, okay, you're black. Was there ever anything where you said, well, no, please don't confuse me with black American. I'm, now we know the police don't care about that, right? Exactly, okay, exactly. You know, yeah. But have you ever had that tug of war where no, I'm African, no, I'm Ghanaian, I'm not those guys. Did you ever have that in your mind and your subconscious and fight with it? <laughs> no, that's a great question and a great point, all right? Um, I personally, I, I think, yeah, in my mind, initially it was there. I couldn't escape it because, you know, I told you about the folks who would call me African booty scratcher and, you know, monkey and all that stuff. These were African American kids. Right. And, um, and so they were separating me from them. Right? Before I even had the chance <laughs> to separate myself, they were pushing me away. You are not like us. You are other. You are from somewhere else. All right? Right. Um, and in a sense, I was the one that was trying to say, hey, no, like, I'm just like you. In fact, I used to say, I'm actually African-American, you know, because <laughs> I have connections to Africa. Y'all don't have no <laughs> You know, you ain't never been, you know, you don't speak the language. So, so I was like, yeah, I'm truly African-American. Um, but no, it is real. And I, I've see, I've, I have Ghanaian American friends who do embrace this whole notion of, you know, I am different from Afri black people, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and in a sense, almost as a point of pride. I'm not as quote unquote ignorant. I'm not as, you know, into 
whatever. I'm not prone to violence or all these, you know, stereotypical things. And you cling to it because you think it's going to save you. You know, um, you think you almost can be a maybe a model minority, right? I'm from Nigeria and Nigerian minorities, we have more engineering degrees than everybody else. So we know all these different things. But like you said, the police don't care about that. When they see you drive by, they see a black person. I don't care if you're African, I don't care Jamaican, whatever, right? Um, and so for me, you have to get over that. In college, um, we hosted this event. I think it was called the Dividing Line, right? And we were in a room, two sides of the room, right? Chairs on either side, a line in the middle. And we had Africans, African students sit on one side and then African-American black students sit on the other side. And like, let's have this dialogue. Let's have this conversation about why we think we're different, right? Um, and what are the commonalities, bet commonalities between us? And what are the stereotypes that we hold about each other, right? So it's interesting to hear uh, um, African-Americans, black Americans talk about how they feel as if Africans don't like them. Africans look down on them. Africans think they're, they're you know, ignorant or, you know, prone to violence, all these different things. Um, and then it was interesting to hear um, Africans talk about how African-Americans think, oh, you just are African booty scratchers or you just live on trees. You're uncivilized, right? You're, Africa is just a place riddled with poverty, right? And so we started to talk about that. And then we started to talk about the history and start to see the common threads, right? When the folks from the New World came to Ghana and bought slaves, you know, bought human beings and enslaved them, those were Ghanaians, those were Africans. And they were shipped across the Middle Passage and they came to Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina, right? Those were Africans. That would right. then now become the African-Americans, right? Um, yeah. you, and the same struggle, too, even with while you had enslaved Africans in America, then you also have colonization, right? right. And you have those same actors coming to Africa and colonizing the nations of Africa and using the labor of those people, right, and to extract wealth. So we're going through the same struggles, and we have a common enemy, but we're fighting amongst ourselves. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's so thank you for sharing that. It, it's uh, one of those things when you become enlightened, you know, like like yourself uh, or if you're, you know, uh, uh, what, what they're calling a foundational black American or the ADOS, whatever you want to call us in America and you live abroad like we do um, and you become enlightened, you get I'm very sensitive to that because I'm thinking black is black. Right. Um, melanin is melanin. Uh, both from John, may he rest in peace. Amadou Diallo, may he rest in peace. You know, when they came over to the USA, um, their untimely demise was due to being black. Let's, let's right. be frank. Um, right. As a matter of fact, um, I even have a friend from Canada who, um, he's a Nigerian uh, Canadian. Mm. And, you know, when we were together a few times, people thought he was from the US. Mm. And his response was, nah, I'm Canadian. <laughs> and after the third time or the second time, I was like, bruh, you know, are you, you, you understand? Like, I was, I was really sensitive. I was like, what, is that a bad thing to be 
a black American, a black Canadian's better. Like, right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and as you know, Canada and, you know, Canada doesn't have as many problems, but they don't have as many people as either. But there's problems everywhere with this, this, this uh, imaginary social construct that they, they created, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just happy that um, that movie, people might say, oh, it was make-believe, but Black Panther, mm -hmm. really, the year of return with Nana did uh, back in December. Um, do you think, Kojo, that some of this blackness and this Africanness, some of these things, like people are getting a, a more educated and some of these things are becoming the thing of the past? Is things getting better? I definitely think there is an awakening happening, right? And maybe some of the silver lining of this global pandemic is that it's caused us to pause and um, certain distractions have been put aside and we've just, and then you have the events that are going on with, you know, the racial unrest and um, people are seeing police murder, right? Um, black citizens um, who are unarmed and, and they stop to think and they, they get a chance to think instead of, you know, you can't escape it, right? And so for even in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we've seen a lot of, you know, white women, right? Or white people in general just come awake and pay attention and say, wow, like I didn't realize this was what was happening and I want to do something, right? And so you have, you know, this, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, New York Times um, had a report just last week talking about how the recent protests that we saw, you know, um, across the United States was probably the largest um, protest in the history of this country, right? Um, and it's different from the civil rights movement because it is very much a multiracial coalition of folks, right? And some of these protests, there are more white people than black people at them, right? Um, so there's definitely a, mo a moment. This is definitely a moment, right? Mm -hmm. The jury is still out if it's going to be a movement, right? Um, in terms of, you know, the white folks that are becoming awake and joining this, are they going to stay? Or is it just going to be a trend for them, right? Hopefully, they stay and it has staying power. Um, but I do think it's a moment and we have to be able to capitalize on that mo moment and tell the truth and speak truth to power, all right? Um, and use that moment as a chance to awaken people and get more people um, engaged and involved and get them to realize that this affects you too. This is not just a black problem, right? Racism, white supremacy is a white problem, right? Um, and Nelson Mandela talks about how the oppressed, you know, a lot of times we look at the oppressed as the sick ones, but the oppressor is also sick, right? And both need to be redeemed, you know? Um, and I say that to say a lot of times people don't really get involved in things if they don't think it affects them, right? right. Yeah, it's bad that there are police brutality and police, you know, killing black people, but that's black people's issue, right? I'm good. I'm gonna just keep living my life. Even Africans sometimes, some Africans will be like, you know what? They're killing these black Americans, these yo 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 people, you know, <laughs> these hip hop people, gangsters, and they ain't coming to my Ghanaian American community or my, you know, Nigerian American community. So I'm not even gonna speak up, 
right? And so, and then here comes me, and I'm like, no, I'm, a, you know, I'm going to speak up. You know, the, the vibe, the energy, the, the mentality as an immigrant in this country is almost like, hey, yo, this ain't your country, you know, stay under the radar, don't try to rock the boat, you know, and hope for the best, all right? But we have to get to the place where we say, no, I am in this country, I'm as much a citizen as anybody else, and I'm not just going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to raise my voice. I'm going to be fearless. I'm going to be courageous. And I'm going to speak my truth. And I'm going to connect with other people. And we're going to try to build an America that's as good as it's promised. All right. Uh, we're not going to settle for the lie. All right. And so I do see some hope. I have to see hope because my own story, right, um, is one of hope. All right. Um, and so, so I like to think that something is changing. I. <clears throat> I pledge to help build an America as good as its promise. That's from uh, Kojo. Um, amazing that you said that, and that segues and builds a perfect bridge over to what we're going to ask you next, which is uh, why did you get into politics? Yeah. Um, you know, I, it wasn't something that I planned on. I went to... so. My mom, I come here at 10 years old. I get to really spend like four years with my mom. When I'm 14, she's 40. She suffers a stroke, all right? Um, she's a few credits away from getting a degree in clinical technology, right? So all them years of, you know, from 23 years old, she gets here, 40 years old. She's been working, multiple jobs, going to school, right? All the stress, and we don't talk about that, and the mental health issues, all that, right? Um, and so she suffers a stroke and the whole left side of her body becomes paralyzed. And so she has to, she stays in a hospital for a few months, racks up a whole bunch of bills, can't afford it, goes bankrupt and has to go back to Ghana, right? For family to help take care of her. So, right. So I live with my uncle and thank God he took me in for the years I was in high school, those four years. And then I, when it came time to go to college, I was an independent student. I went to college, right. To make my way. And one thing led to another. I didn't know my dad. I hadn't met my dad. And, um, but I became very successful in college. And I found myself, found my voice. By the time I was a senior, I was student body president, right, of a campus that was over 20,000 students. And, and so, like, naturally, when you become student body president, people start tagging you with politics and a future in politics and those kinds of things, you know. <laughs> Um, so it was in the back of my mind, but really I was so purpose driven and I, I just knew that I had talent and I had great potential. And I heard that from my teachers when I was in Ghana growing up and I heard it from my teachers when I was in America growing up in elementary school and middle school, you know, so I wanted to explore this, the, the limits of my potential. All right. Um, and, and this American dream story always stuck with me. So how do we make the American dream real for myself and also for as many people as possible? Um, so, so anyway, so after college, I went to law school, but in law school, I was like, you know, I am not, I realized that I was not going to be fulfilled just becoming a corporate lawyer, right? Um, and talking to a lot of the graduates who had graduated ahead of me and finding out what they were doing. And they were just not satisfied with being high-paid paper pushers, right? Or working for the man, right? Just to make corporations rich and seeing everything else that was going on in the news and not feeling like you had an impact on that. 
And um, so, so yeah, so I was like, I need to find a cause, you know, I need to find a cause for my life and dedicate myself to that cause. And then one day, maybe politics might come, but I will be the kind of politician that is not just interested in the position for the position's sake, because I found my cause and I'm working towards that. And so if I get the position, I'm going to be fighting for my cause. If I don't get the position, I'm going to be fighting for that cause, right? And the way you find a meaningful cause for your life is you look back over your own life and you go all the way back even to your parents and maybe your grandparents if you can, right? And understand their history and understand the context within which you came into this world and what were the forces that shaped your life. And education was key for me, right? So I said, you know what? I'm going to do something drastic. I'm going to become a teacher after law school, right? And, and I'm going to learn about education, this cause that Nelson Mandela said, education is the greatest tool you can use to change the world, right? I'm going to use, I'm going to explore that from the ground floor. And what is the ground floor more than being a kindergarten teacher, all right? Yeah. So I found this program called Teach for America, and I said, I'm so excited about this. I want y'all to send me to wherever the need is high because they were based in every state in the country. And so they sent me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right? So that's how I ended up in Oklahoma. I had never stepped foot in Oklahoma before then. They sent me to Oklahoma. They sent me to North Tulsa, Oklahoma. Unbeknownst to me, they were sending me to a place called Little Africa, right? where black, historic Black Wall Street was situated. Right? So in the early 1900s, the most prosperous African-American community in the country was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, in 1921, white folk who were jealous and envious of the success of these black folk, one, they called it Little Africa as they thought it was going to be offensive, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, what we talked about before in the, the view of Africa. Um, but anyway, they burned it down, right? Over the course of two days, they burned down this prosperous black community um and and then try to hide that history so a lot of people didn't even know that history all right um so so anyway so i get to really learn about this community and this history through the eyes of kindergartners who are the descendants of this great legacy all right um and i just fall in love with them i fall in love with this community and i become very passionate about ensuring that we can build sustainable communities where everyone has an opportunity to achieve their American dream, all right? And so that's what led me to this place now of, you know, I've held a lot of different positions. I went from being a teacher. I worked in education policy. I was able to become a founder of an elementary school in this community. Um, I was executive director of uh, an incubator here in town, entrepreneurial incubator in town. Um, And and now I'm stepping up to run for office same cause, right? How can we ensure that we build communities where people can achieve their high, highest potential and fulfill the American dream? Because that's what—that's the idea of America in the first place, all right? So, so that's what brings me to to this office. Well, I'm, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Dandy chime in. I know he's uh, he's gearing up to ask you some questions, but I just want to say, man, I I commend you, um, and I, I believe that um, your you know, there's a saying, the key to success is sincerity. And mm. if people can't see that, if they can't see how sincere and authentic you are, then they're blind. So, Dandy, go in, man. I know, I mean, since he brought up uh, Tulsa, go ahead, man. 
I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm like chopping at the bit. Um, because yeah, again, you just build another bridge directly across to what I was going to bring up next. Um, you know, just, 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 yeah, that, that, that legacy of, uh, of Tulsa, um, starting from the success of it, because oftentimes when we hear about black wall street, people only, uh, bring up, bring up the destruction. Um, and, uh, you know, what happened over like those, those, uh, those, a uh, couple days, um, but that, that prehistory of how many doctors and lawyers and barbershops and mechanics and all of these um, uh, black owned businesses, banks, um, you know, uh, you know, these things, it was, it was a successful, thriving black community. And, um, you know, not just that, but obviously Rosewood as well. And like, you know, like, you know, a couple others. Um, you know, throughout America, you know, during, you know, during those times. So, um, for you, for you as a, as a immigrant, um, African immigrant to be in that situation and you ask just like, send me where the need is great, man, that's the, like, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm just like, like the inspiration behind that. And then you just happen to land right there in Tulsa with that great legacy. Yeah. And you know, cause the universe, God has a way of maneuvering and working you talked about authenticity and sincerity if you are right seek to be authentic and genuine and you seek to right there's this hero's journey and embrace the adventure right um things will fall into place um uh and it, there's a magical quality to it but yeah like when you look at the story of black wall street they were doing this at a time when it was you know jim crow and segregation you know um and there were folks being lynched, right? Um, and so there were tough times, right? And so it's got to inspire you that no matter what we're going through right now, right? It couldn't have been tougher than what they were going through and having to deal with, right? And yet still, they were able to, you know, build such a community. And a part of the story that people actually also leave out, it was burned down in 1921, but it was actually rebuilt, right? And Black Wall Street didn't actually reach the height of its financial success until 1941. So 1941 was the height of financial success on Black Wall Street. So the kind of resilience, right, that it took um, to, to be able to build in the first place was also the same that allowed them to rebuild it. Um, and, then, and then, you know, desegregation happened and um urban removal happened and you know all these policies that came down from the federal level to just you know put the death knell into it um and it reminded me to tell you a story about resilience as it relates to the diaspora and africans coming from africa to america later on to make that connection so uh kojo you are you are a list of firsts you know as i was doing my research you know saw that you're the first black nominee from oklahoma district one youngest ever Democratic nominee for Oklahoma District 1, the first resident of North Tulsa to be nominee for Oklahoma District 1, and first Ghanaian American nominee for Congress. I wish we had an applause button, but um, I mean, like, this is your life, brother. You know, like, as they say, this is your life. Like, you know, how does it feel to, 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 to like, have the responsibility more so of those, of those uh, titles, so to speak? Yeah. You know, it's very interesting because for me, you know, I, it would have been different if I was seeking out, right, those superlatives, right? But I wasn't, you know, I was just seeking to make a difference, right? And, you know, one thing leads to another and you follow your heart and, you know, you, you, um, you go beyond the fear, 
right? And you say, I want to be fearless and I want to go for it, right? And why not me? Um, and we are the ones we've been waiting for. And if not now, then when, right? And so when you do that and then you come to find out, oh, wow, like I am the first and all these different things. One, it feels good because people respond to that, right? People respond to that. People are inspired by that. So I do feel, you said the key word there, responsibility. I do feel this great sense of responsibility because I am representing something beyond just myself for people. And that my hope is that my story, um, people look at my story and they're not so much impressed that, oh, wow, he's so special, but that they see themselves. And then they can say, oh, if Kojo did it, that means I can do it, right? Because Kojo is smart enough to know that he's not the smartest guy in the room, right? Um, and he's not so special that only he can do these things, all right? Um, I just was able to get beyond my fear and believe in myself and go for it. And so I want to inspire other people to do the same thing. Believe in yourself. You are just as smart as anybody else. You're just as talented, just as gifted. Don't buy into the lie, all right, that they try to tell you Right, because that's what white supremacy is. At yeah. the at its core, it's that message that they're trying to send is that white is better. If you're yeah. white, you're smarter. If you're white, you're more capable. Which then means if you're not white, if you're black, you there's you're deficient. All right, and there's something off, man. You can't strive. You know who are you? Who do you think you are to be striving for this position? To be challenged? You know, and you have to dismantle that and part of my story is dismantling white supremacy um because that's what's really going to set us free right we may not be in bondage physically anymore we may not be in chains but a lot of us are still in bondage mentally all right um and we have to take the chains off you know some sometimes uh it can be just getting an a on the test mm -hmm. <laughs> to realize that you're not you're not the dumbest guy in the room or there's other people that you know or or have less intelligence or whatever, you know, right. it, I mean, it, it, it literally, um, I have a, a presentation that I did at, uh, I'm sure you heard of Carnegie Mellon, but I'm from mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, I did it at the University of Pittsburgh, and then I used to do it, I'm an educator, so I used to do it uh, with my staff, my, uh, my teachers, and it's mm -hmm. on stereotype threat, mm -hmm. and basically it's um, a social psychological term that basically says that if you remove the threats of your stereotype, cognitively mm. then there's nothing that can stop you mm. and i remember when i was studying it, it was i was thinking about how barack it was around the time barack was running for president or he might have been president and i and this i was really like wow i'll bet any money barack doesn't have any limitations he's mm. still conscious about his race but he doesn't have any limitations about him being a male, him being a black male, him being a, you know, a son of a, an immigrant or a son of a, a white woman from Kansas. Like, he's just doing his thing. And he's walking and strutting like it and he's speaking like it. And um, so with my students, that's what I try to remove is those threats, those stereotypes that threaten progress. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess we all have to do it, man. Even white people, like you said, it's important for them to do it. All right. So, All right. Definitely. Wow. Hey, um, we, we really appreciate you being on. Um, can you please tell us that uh, story? You said the story of resilience. Yeah. So um, when I went back to Ghana in 2008, I went to visit the slave castle. Mm -hmm. right? 
Almina Slave Castle. And this, so, you know, um, I think it was the Dutch were um, first to come to Ghana to, um, to engage in the slave trade. And they had built these castles on, on the coast where they would, you know, keep the slaves before they walk through the door of no return to get to, to the, into the bow of the ships and head to the new world. And so my cousin's husband kind of served as our tour guide. He's in Ghana, grew up there and all that. So we're just, you know, taking this tour and it's an incredible, uh, amazing experience, um, just heart-wrenching to see the, you know, slave dungeon. You have the female slave dungeon, then you have the male slave dungeon and where they just packed all these folks. Um, they didn't have any bathroom, so they're having to defecate right there. They're having to eat in the same place, right? There's just one hole in the wall that provides light and air. You can still smell the stench of death to this day, right? And right above the dungeon is actually where the, uh, there's a church, right? There's a church right above the slave dungeon. It was just crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, my tour guide says to me, you know, um, those black Americans in America, those, they're, they're like superhuman. They're like Marvel characters, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because it's interesting coming from an African, right? Normally, Africans will talk about how, you know, the Amer uh, black people in America are lazy. They are, you know, not taking advantage of the opportunities that they have that, you know, people in Africa are trying to go to get and these folks are already there and they're squandering it. But he's saying they are superhuman. So I was like, say more about that. So he said, well, you know, before you even get to the slave castle, a lot of the folks who were going to be enslaved had to walk like 30, 40 miles just to get to the slave castle, right? And you're walking chained and naked, right? And so a lot of people didn't even make it on that trek. They died en route to the castle. And then once you got to the slave castle, right, there, you, you're staying there for maybe a month or two months in these conditions that I just described. And then if you were too belligerent, you know, they had these like um, solitary confinement, you know, cages that they put you in and, you know, they'll beat you. And so a lot of people died at the slave castle. So if you were fortunate to survive the trek there and the conditions in that castle, your reward now is you're going to go through those, the door of no return and go into the ship. And then once you get into the ship to trek for the middle passage, right, you're laid there in the bowels of the ship like sardines, right? People are throwing up on each other. People have all these sicknesses, right? All these different things. And a lot of people don't make it. A lot of dead bodies at the bottom of the Atlantic because people died and they were just thrown overboard. And then some people can't even handle it. They're like, you know what? I'd rather die than to go be enslaved. So they just jumped. You know, and they said it was so bad that the sharks came to just circle these ships because they knew there was going to be food coming. All right. To this day, that's where the most sharks in the Atlantic are. Look at that. All right. And so if you were able to survive all of that, your reward is now you're in the new world and you're standing on the block to be sold as a slave. Right. To be examined by some white landowner 
all right, and to be branded as a slave, to go onto the plantation in the extreme hot sun of the American South, right? And, you know, the reason why they were so interested in Africans is because the Brazilians couldn't do it, right? The, the Asians couldn't withstand the heat, right? So we apparently were the ones that could withstand the heat, right? Because this was, you know, sweltering heat. And so you have to endure the plantation, hard work, hard labor, right? And endure, you know, um, beatings and your wife getting raped, you know, your children being in danger, like all this, right? And so to make a long story short, he said, you've endured all of that. And then you go through, right, abolition movement, civil war, we have to fight in the civil war, right, to gain freedom. And then you you gain quote unquote freedom. And then here comes Jim Crow, you know, and you have to go through Jim Crow and the black codes and segregation, right? Then you have the civil rights movement, all right? And then you have the war on drugs, you have mass incarceration. So just we talk about just the recounting of the journey to get here. And at that time, Barack Obama had become president. So he's like, to go through all of that and then for a black person then to become president of the United States, to rise to that, that's just crazy, right? It's just crazy. And so he was saying basically, I wish they knew how powerful they were. I wish they knew that the, the same blood that's flowing through the people that made it is flowing through their veins, right? right? And that you have to be superhuman to make it through that whole journey. Right. Um, and so that was just a powerful story. And I was like, wow, like if I want to just have that in my mind every minute of every day. Right. Yeah. So that you have there's no room for a lack of confidence. There's no room for an inferiority complex. Like you have everything you need to be all that God created you to be and to accomplish anything you put your mind to. Right. Um, because they did it and you can do it, too. You know, it's funny. Uh, I want to add, you, you piled, he piled on so many different var variables and risk factors, but I want to add a couple more, if I can remember. Um, it was a 90-day voyage because those ships were schooners. Mm. So those ships went towards the current, right? So like that, what is it, the stream or whatever? Th that's mm -hmm. how they went. And they had their longitude or their latitude or whatever together so it can get over there to the Caribbean mm. or to Brazil. So 90 days, what, is, what happens to a woman every month in 90 days, every, yeah. every, 30, day, every 30 days, right? Um, and then also on the ships, it was anarchy mm. because there was no police. There was no laws. So mm. slaves were raping women. Mm. Slave catchers were raping. I mean, it was the women were just nothing Not on those slave ships. Mm -hmm. And and of course there was illness, like you said. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I was over at El Elmina Castle, and I was thinking of those same things, brother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, how powerful we are. And then the other thing, just to get back to where I told you how sensitive I am. Um, once again, from Benin to uh, Togo to Gabon, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, that whole uh, West Africa. Right. When you think about it. The one thing I always bring up to black Brits, immigrants and everything is out of that was Barack, but out of that was Martin, Malcolm, Ollie, Oprah, yeah. like, you know, 
And we yeah. can even go, even though you know a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it, Dave Chappelle, Kevin Hart, Jay-Z, Beyonce, like there's yeah. still, you know, uh, Skip Gates, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many people when I talk to black Brits and they say, you know, the American, the black American or about black Canadian who is from the Caribbean mostly. And I go, well, where's Canada's Martin or Malcolm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and it's never really a debate. I just have to remind them that that urban decay and those stereotypes and that blight you see, yeah. there's a Barack that came out of some of this, yeah. right? You know, and they tried to call him Barry and, and send him yeah. to Hawaii. Right, but a Barack right. Obama came from that. So I always just throw those little reminders out there because there is a negative connotation on uh, the black American. Yeah. yeah. And also another thing that has become a focus of mine more recently is the fact that black people in America are what made America the democracy that it is, right? Like it was written on paper, but black people fighting for their freedom and their humanity it's what actually has made those words more true than they were when they were first written and there's more work to be done, all right? So America wouldn't be this democracy that they tout and go to other countries to fight wars to try to do nation building over there, right? If it wasn't for black people in this country fighting to make it so, all right? So yeah, and, so I- and the, and the cotton gin, the, 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 the slave labor boosted and, us past China go. and the UK. Exactly. As far as money, and I'm sure you know that. Exactly, exactly. So there's so much, there's so many layers to it, right? There's so many layers to it, and you can see why we're in the predicament that we're in because we don't teach this history in our schools, right? So a lot of white folk don't even know this, right? They don't know this, and they're told a different story, a different narrative, so they don't see it. And so we have so much work to do to educate people about the American reality, right? Um, I have a quick question. Um, where you're located in Oklahoma, that used to be the Louisiana Purchase, right? Was it? Yeah. Well, was it I part think. of the? It might have been in there. Yeah. It might have yeah. Been, yeah. I believe. I believe Oklahoma. Uh, those states. Uh, some. You know. No offense. Sometimes they call them the flyover states, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay. But um, right above that, Texas. Yeah. But let me tell you, um, the, the Louisiana Purchase was purchased or was sold. Let me take that back. Was sold because of the Haitian Revolution. Mm, mm-hmm. What happened was the Haitians fought off the French, right? right? Mm-hmm. And they end up uh, selling the Louisiana. I mean, it, literally, the, the United States, that middle part of the country, that whole Trail of Tears, right. is from Haiti. Right. There's a connection there. There's a financial connection. Right. Where the French had to sell the Louisiana area mm-hmm. to the U.S. Right, right. Because they were under bankruptcy from fighting a war that they eventually lost. Right, right. So, yeah. so um, I learned about that years ago. So um, it's something to say about the Haitians as well, right. the Caribbean, yeah. and how they, uh, J- 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 uh, uh, Jamaica, uh, who, who Marlon's from, yeah. I, believe, I believe they um, had slave revolts that abolished slavery Mm-hmm. prior to American slavery, prior to 1865. Mm-hmm. So it's all like, we're all connected, man. Right. We're all right. connected. Yeah. So, um, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is powerful. This is powerful. And, 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 uh, and I knew, and I knew that, um, I knew that this was, uh, 
this is going to take this direction. So, uh, you know, really happy that, 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 um, uh, you've added this, this, this amazing fuel, uh, to the conversation, Kojo. I want to, um, switch gears a little bit into, um, you as the politician and like, really like, I know that obviously you're, you're a forward thinking person. So like you already have your platform set. So it's not a political show, but I mean like anything that you want to say about when you win. When you win. Yes. Yes. When, when, not if. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for me, I start off with, you know, so the, there's a U.S. House of Representatives, um, Barbara, Barbara Jordan, she won, she was, she was from Texas, one of the first black women to win um, and join Congress. And she has the quote, you know, about what do the people want? And her answer to that is the people want an America as good as its promise, all right? And so that is so foundational to how I think about my mission um, in this office. Um, in light of what my story is. And so what, what the question I'm trying to solve for is, you know, how, what are the policies that we need to be in place to be able to build an America that's as good as it's promised, to be able to build um, communities where everyone has the opportunity to be able to thrive. And so I've identified, I can go too much into it, but four main categories, right, that I'm going to be focused on in my platform. First category is education and opportunity, all right? Second category is health and economic security. Third is justice and equity. And then the final one is environment and infrastructure, all right? Um, and so for the first one, education and opportunity, in Oklahoma, we are 49th in the nation in education funding, all right? And we're about 48th or 47th in teacher pay. So we have bad educational outcomes because we are defunding our education. Since 2008, we lead the nation in cuts to our education budget, right? Uh, so we're not adequately funding our education system. And a lot of times that really affects black and brown communities, right? Um, and then we know that teachers, great teachers are the number one school-based variable to academic success for our students. And so if you're paying teachers, you know, uh, bottom dollar, well, guess what? You're going to lose great teachers and then you're not going to attract the best teachers. And students who are coming out of college are not going to want to go into the teaching profession, right? And so you're not going to have great outcomes and you're not going to have an educated populace, right? Um, and, and that affects a lot of different things. It affects economic, you know, development. Companies are not going to want to come to Oklahoma if our education system is in the dumps, right? What's interesting about Oklahoma is, as we are failing on the education end, we lead the nation in incarceration rate, right? So we incarcerate more men and women per capita than any other state in this union, right? And because we're in America, and America incarcerates more people than anybody else, we lead the world, right? And there's a connection there. There's a school to prison pipeline. If you're not funding your education system, all right, and you're not educating, and the, the statistics show that if a kid is not reading on grade level by the end of third grade, 75% of them never catch up. And that's significant in third grade because 
you're learning to read up until third grade. And after that, you're reading to learn. So if you never learned how to read, now you're just falling back with every year. And so we can predict future incarceration rates based on third grade reading scores, right? We can predict teenage pregnancy. We can predict dropout rates, all these different things, right? Because it happens there in, that early, in those early years. And I was able to experience that as being a kindergarten teacher and a third grade teacher. And so we have to invest in early childhood education. Um, a kid's brain is 85% developed by the time they are um, three years old, all right? So if we wait till kindergarten, we're already behind, all right? Um, so education is important and it's also connected to criminal justice, right? We have to stop, you know, we have to end the failed war on drugs, right? That was meant to just get black and brown people in prison, you know? We have to stop the over-policing of um, our black and brown communities, right? Where, where you have a bunch of police in the black neighborhoods. Um, meanwhile, there's just as much drug use going on in the white neighborhoods, but nobody goes over there, right? And then we pathologize, you know, blackness and, and brownness, right? We have to legalize marijuana for that exact same reason, right? Because, you know, not because we want everybody to just be high and whatnot and unproductive, but because we've used marijuana, right, which is now legal in a lot of different states in the United States, and yet there are black and brown people serving, you know, serious time in prison for using this single, you know? And so we have to legalize it um, to have a more just and equitable society, all right? And then, you know, so, so yeah, so it's a lot of different things, but you go down the list. Health and economic security in the wealthiest nation on earth in America Nobody, where we preach the work ethic and we preach working hard to grow up to your dreams, but then when somebody gets sick in pursuit of that dream, they don't have access to quality, affordable health care. So my mom has no options other than going bankrupt, right? So nobody should go bankrupt just because they get sick working hard in pursuit of their dreams, right? Um, if we're going to be America and brag about being the wealthiest nation on earth, right? So, so that has to happen. Also, we have a minimum wage that is $7.25, right? And we've had it for decades. You can't live, it's not a living wage. Nobody can live on that, right? And so we have to raise that minimum wage and it has to be a living wage and it has to be attached to inflation, right? Because you shouldn't, you know, my students, parents, a lot of them coming out of single parent households, because this war on drugs has incarcerated a lot of their parents. Well, their mom is having to work two, three jobs just to put food on the table. And because of that, she can't be home to read to her kid. She can't be home to spend time with her kid, right? Um, and then you don't get the educational outcomes, and then you blame her for being lazy. You blame the kid for not being smart enough, right? It's just, it's just messed up, right? And it doesn't really make sense. Um, and, and so those are the things we have to do. Um, and then at the end, with environment and infrastructure, right, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we used to be the oil capital of the world, right? And a lot of what Black Wall Street, um, there was a lot of oil money that was able to help Black Wall Street. Um, and, but we also know that our world is transitioning, right, away from dirty coal, right, and oil. Um, and, and so we have to help lead this transition, and we have the opportunity to remake our economy. So similar to what Maybe places like Dubai experience or countries in the Middle East that are, you know, oil rich, but really have to think about the future, right? When America is no longer dependent on, on the oil. So while you have the chance, invest in 
diversifying your economy, right? Um, and so for us here in Oklahoma, we have a chance to be part of the, you know, clean, renewable, um, you know, energy sources, right? Um, and build a new kind of energy to really boost our economy and bring in frontline communities, right? African-American community, Hispanic community that have been left out of our economies in the past, right? And the new jobs that we create, rebuilding our infrastructure and our energy can actually be high paying jobs for these communities, right? Um, so all these different things tie together and the spirit of it is trying to build a more equitable society where we're expanding opportunity to more and more people, right? Instead of restricting it. Because what Donald Trump says about make America great again, um, it's absurd because when you look at what he's actually prescribing, it doesn't make America great again. The people who are supporting him, their lives don't become better just because you build a wall, right, at our southern border. That's not how you make America great. We're actually a nation of immigrants, right? And that's part of what makes us great, you know? If he's wanting to take away your health care, that is not going to make your life any better, right? I don't care if you live in rural America or urban America, right? Um, if your hospitals are closing down in the rural counties, it hurts you. You know, you're hurting just as much as the folks, right? Um, in the inner cities whose schools are getting shut down and who don't have access to healthcare. So it's getting people to see that we share this, you know, we're in the same boat now, right? Um, and, and we are in this inextricably tied, you know, in this, you know, mutuality of interest. And we have to have a shared vision um, and build an America that works for all of us. Because if I succeed, you succeed, right? If my kids succeed, your kids succeed. This is not a dog eat dog, zero sum game, you know? Um, and so those are the kind of things that I'm looking to do when I'm in Congress. Thank you for that. If you, if you allow, if you allow me to be a bit sarcastic, uh, your, your, your platform is profound and, uh, and, uh, uh, really it's common sense, but as they say, sense isn't that common. Right. Um, so, so like, you know, all those sound, you know, great and like definitely wish you the best with all that. And we're going to definitely be following, you know, following your race. I um, I wanted, I wanted to, uh, end where we began, which is, uh, in Africa, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, being, you know, being a global citizen, um, you're the, you're the perfect person to ask because you've, 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 you've gone from there, uh, and, and to the States and, you know, um, experience, experience life on both ends. You know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you feel that, um, having, having that global experience has, has, uh, helped you to grow, um, helped you to, uh, understand people better and, 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 and how do you feel that can also benefit, uh, young black people in America to, not just think that's the end all and to know they have alternatives uh in various places like africa which has the fastest growing economies today yeah you know it's interesting because you don't realize it when you're in the american bubble but in america we're very self-centered and self-interested right um and then when you travel you know i studied abroad in china and i was just amazed by how much they knew about us here in america right um, and I think that's the case around the world where because America is the quote unquote superpower, everybody is steady in America, but Americans are not steady in the rest of the world. And we take for granted that we're going to be the superpower forever. All right. Um, and so I started also realize that, yeah, my Ghanaian upbringing just gave me a different perspective. Um, you know, I, I saw the bigger picture when others couldn't see, 
you know, and I, I connected the dots, right? And that intrinsically makes you more creative, like, and innovative. That's what innovation is about. Steve Jobs talks about the definition of innovation and creativity is just being able to connect the dots. But if you don't have that, you know, global, broad experience, you're not able to connect the dots, all right? Um, and we know in this 21st century world, the world has shrunk, right? So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to start a business, you want to start a podcast, you don't just have access to your neighborhood or your small community, you have access to the entire globe. So you have to think globally, you know, act locally, think globally, all right? Um, and so that's what we have to encourage folks. If you're in the inner city, like, all you need is a, you know, in the past, you know, there are kids living in Washington, D.C., on the, you know, in Southeast D.C., who've never been to the Capitol, right? They can see it in the distance, and it's like, you know, five, ten minutes away. They've never been there. That's crazy. But you know what? You don't even have to go there. All you need is a computer, and you can access the whole world. You can go to Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower, right? You can see all the great buildings and skyscrapers in Dubai, right? So, so we have to take advantage of that. So you, you can, in your mind, right, unburden yourself with those stereotypical threats you talked about, Heath, and free your mind and become creative, add value to the world, and you can have access through technology to the world, right? And you can read, and you know, books are so important. Yeah, in, in this information age, you know, yeah, your education system might be failing you, but you know, you can go and learn yourself. You can be an autodidact, you know, and learn so much, you know, um, on your own about this vast world, right? And access global markets like you guys are doing. Um, and so, so I think it's so important. And, and for me, for my own child, I just had a child, um, 12, she's 12 weeks old. And one of the things that I want to really be able to do is travel, right? Because traveling just opens up your mind. You guys know this, right? Opens up your mind to a whole lot of possibilities. In fact, like when I was in China, I was at my most creative. Just off that, because you're in a different place. You don't speak the language, right? The, the food, you can't order the food menu unless there's a picture, right? Because you can't, you know, all these different things. So you have to draw upon all these inner resources within yourself. And you realize, oh, wow, I can actually survive. I can make it. You have these instincts that come, all right, that you weren't aware of. So, so um, I think that's where the world is going. It's going to be a global world. We're going to be global citizens. And those who are not learning about others are going to be left behind. Those who are just, you know, self-interested and, you know, myopic um, are not going to succeed and thrive. Awesome. 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 Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, you made me think of something when you said that, um, uh, earlier, earlier you, you, um, mentioned, uh, when we were talking about white people and white supremacy, about it being a problem of theirs, not being diverse, right? Mm -hmm. Them not being diverse is a huge issue in the global market because they're not going to be able to communicate well and be just culturally responsive, culturally proficient, culturally competent. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be a person like yourself who's been all over the place, Northern Virginia to Tulsa to Ghana, right? And, and, and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So um, it gives us a leg up. It really does. You know, the way, the, the way my life has changed here in, in, in uh, Dubai is I can't trade the experience for 
for the you know anything in the world right so yeah so yeah yeah no that's great and marlon i want to add what you said you know africa is up next right yeah. um the 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 shift globally and globalization and economically you know we went to china and we've you know people have kind of exhausted that and you know um living standards have you know gone up and um the cost of labor has gone up and you know capital is looking for right um value and to be able to make profit um and so they're gonna africa is is it's gonna be up next um and um so a lot of folks are gonna be turning their eyes on us in africa and we have to be ready and we have to learn the lessons right of other places before us and ensure that we don't get taken advantage of right um and um it's tough one of the things that um depressed me so and um when I was in college, I wrote a paper. Um, I can't find it anymore. I wish I could find it. But it was called the United States of Africa. And I mm. tried to envision United States of America and a United States of Africa, right? And to be able to negotiate with the rest of the world on your own terms, right? Because we have the most resource-rich, right? On the planet, we are the most resource-rich. And yet, economically, right, we're the poorest. Right. And all these people are getting rich off of our natural resources because it's a divide and conquer kind of situation. And we're not like we don't have an OPEC, you know, to be able to negotiate on our own terms and get um, fair market value for our resources. All right. Um, and, and, and so I explored that, um, how powerful the continent would be if we, we were fully united. But then, sadly, I also have to take stock of the forces that would come against such a reality because they are benefiting from us not being united, right? Um, and so there's a lot to work through when you talk about, you know, leaders like Patrice, you know, Lumumba, right, who had similar visions, but then was assassinated, right? Um, and and so so it becomes tough so i mean that's a lot that's another conversation for another time um and you know and 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 when i think about those things i'm glad that i'm in america because sometimes people are like well why don't you go back to africa and lead there but like you know america we have the we're like octopus you know we have the long tentacles and we reach into every part of the globe right um and right now if you try to um free people in Africa in a sense, right? And to empower people to um, uh, come together to negotiate um, fair trade, a lot of the powers that be would be against that. And they would do everything in their power to ensure that didn't happen, right? Because it would shift the global you know, power dynamic. Um, and so oh, it needs oh. to be, the work needs to start here in a sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, and I'll and I'll uh, and I'll comment on that in us closing. That um, you know, people like uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Arakana uh, Chiambori Kwai, uh, who is the who is the head of the you know like the African Union and um, in uh, the stage for diaspora um, was formerly. Um, she she she's uh, you know she's she's doing big things and taking big steps um, you know towards that. Obviously, educating. Um, you know, diaspora um, and our Black Americans about about like our true connection and what we can do to like regain our power and these kinds of things. But she's based there in the states, 
someone like yourself as well that's like also talking about those same things, United States of Africa, et cetera. It's great that you guys are there because Africa needs allies within uh, uh, you know, within America and then, and then to work together with um, the new crop of, of uh, thought leaders uh, that are coming up in Africa because trust me, like things are changing, things are changing and it's, and it's, a, and it's, and it's a new day in many countries in Africa and that, you know, that we're starting to see. So, um, so yeah, like, you know, we just, we just, we're just thankful for uh, that you're in the position that you're in and you have the mindset that you have, you're striving towards galvanizing uh, communities, um, you know, there as well as um, standing tall on your on your Ghanaian and African heritage. Amen. Amen. Thank well, it's it, it's it's been an amazing, amazing chat. Thank you so much, Kojo, for your time, brother. Uh, cannot uh, cannot cannot thank you enough. Really, thank you all again so much for being here. And we always say at this time, the global and prosper. Peace. Check us out on YouTube, Global Brothers Podcast, and please subscribe and share and, you know, continue to support, you know, good yeah. time. Thanks, everybody. Mr. Worldwide.